welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. I hope everybody is doing well. I am one of your hosts. I am Jordan Porter, joined by the amazing Yvonne Brandenburg. Hey, girl, hey. <laughs> hey. And Jordan's also amazing. I forget that it's kind of weird because you always do the intro, and I'm like, dude. I do always do the intro. You're doing next week, so. Okay, that sounds good. Make up for it next week. <laughs> oh my god that'd be so funny <laughs> oh my god <sighs> yeah i apologize i'm still sick i'm getting over it though i promise i'm actually god it's been like a week already and i don't know anybody else who's got this one it sucks it's like it's got the cough it's not covid it's not covid it's just some other random cold that's running around better than the gi virus that's like wreaking havoc over here Oh, really? Yeah, Ooh. we got some like GI stuff going around. Oh, no. Uh, I don't want that me, on top of it. <laughs> I don't go anywhere. <laughs> I know. This is like, well, it's crazy because I leave tomorrow morning. Um, I fly out to, to Vegas for um, Western Veterinary Conference, which will be awesome. I'm, I'm super excited because I've actually never been, which is hilarious. Um, and then I'm lecturing on Sunday. I've got, I don't even know, five. I want to say it's five lectures. I don't know. I got, I, I should know this, but I don't. You got quite a uh, I gotcha. It's fine. I mean, I have it listed somewhere and stuff's done. I just off the top of my head, I have no idea what I'm doing. And it'll be fun. Cause I'll be able to see some people I haven't seen in a really long time. Like that I used to work with. So. Oh, nice. That'll be really yeah. nice. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. Uh, it's a quick trip though. Like I I go tomorrow and then I um, head home on Monday. I'm not there for the whole conference, but you know I I don't need to be there for the whole conference. But yeah, I'm excited to to go and it's weird because it's the last conference that I've got scheduled for quite a while. I think the next one that I specifically know about right at the moment is ce on the sea 2025 haven't even told jordan but i'm officially speaking for that one so uh that tech life's ce on the sea i'm sure you'll you'll see promotions about it it's january 2025 and it's ce on a cruise ship which freaking cool is that right it's a great excuse i've never been on a cruise ship so that'll be oh really first, first, yeah i know right oh. So that'll, that'll be fun. And that's in January next year. So, you know, if you're planning for your 2025 CE calendar, that is a, that's a good one to request because first of all, it's CE, but second of all, it's on a cruise ship and it's not like it's even more expensive than any other conference you would go to, you know, between the cost of like conference hotels and stuff like that you're probably going to end up paying about the same. So definitely check it out. We'll pull a link somewhere. And then uh, let's see what else we got. We got, oh, next month, 
for so March 2024, we'll be doing our, our monthly CE. We sorry, we missed February. I was sick. I was out of town. Jordan's like doing a bunch of stuff and we realized we we did not plan for February. So we completely spaced. I'm sorry. That was not was not the plan. But it's nice we're back on track. We've got the next few months planned out. So next month will be immune-mediated polyarthritis. Um, and I can't remember the other months that we have, but we'll we'll have it scheduled. So that'll be Saturday, March 9th. So if you are an Internal Medicine for Vet Techs membership member, um, remember those are all included in your membership. So you can join them for free. If you're not a member yet, but you want some live virtual CE, you are welcome to join us every month. There is a there is a ticket price for non-members, but it's it's pretty it's a pretty small price. And then of course, Love You Vet. She she's got her fun stuff. So check out her website. We love her her stuff. Her swag's amazing. I know we've got like veterinary assistant week, I think is now. Yeah, I think it's frame. now. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you haven't gotten anything for your veterinary assistance in your life, check out her website. Also, veterinary receptionist week is coming sometime soon. So you can find something for them or just for yourself, whatever, you know, take advantage of it. And we do have a discount code. Um, so if you order from her website, it is IMFVT10. So IMFVT10. And it is lovehuvet.com, which is L-O-V-E-H-U-V-E-T.com. And check out some of the cool things that she has on her website. And last shout out, because you know, vet techs are doing amazing things these days. Laura, who just did an episode with us a few weeks ago, her internal medicine, veterinary internal medicine nursing academy is, I think it's either open or it's opening soon. She has some limited spots for you to get into her membership and it's, it's pretty amazing. She just launched her podcast. What? A couple Uh, weeks ago. Yeah. I think she did it at the beginning of January beginning of January. Yeah. So it's still super new, but she's so brilliant. Definitely go check out her stuff. We share her stuff all the time because Laura's Laura's super smart and we love her. Sure. Um, So definitely, definitely check out her Academy and, and see if that's something you'd want to join. And she's in the UK. So if you're in the UK, she's a huge resource for you guys. Definitely go check out her stuff. That is our housekeeping this month. Anything else you can think of, Jordan? I think I think we got everything. I think that's it. All right, cool. So we're gonna we're gonna dive into some stuff I didn't have to deal with <laughs> in the, the Bay Area too much. Probably I'm gonna have to deal with it a little bit more up here in Oregon because I don't know. actually seen ticks, which I didn't even see ticks in California. So I mean, I guess yeah. maybe I've only ever seen one case of this as well. I've never seen it, but I mean, I literally am actually seeing ticks. Mm-hmm. Like in California, I never saw them. Well, you're going to learn about it. It's actually quite <laughs> rare still in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank, anyway. Thank goodness. This week, we're going to be talking about tick paralysis, or also known as tick, tick toxicosis, for the sake of saving my tongue from being tied and saying tick <laughs> toxicosis a million times. I'm going to say tick paralysis. It's tick tock. TikTok. It is TikTok. It is. It is the vet. It's the vet med TikTok. It's TikToks. 
That's nerdy. Don't steal that. I don't know who don't steal it. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to trademark. TikToks. But anyway, so we're going to be talking about tick paralysis. This is, I mean, I kind of spoiled a little bit. It doesn't happen. It happens in the United States, just not as often as it happens elsewhere. But it's a progressive and acute disease. What it does is it affects it paralyzes motor function. And this is generally due to the salivary neurotoxins that's produced by a certain species of ticks. So it's actually, it's actually considered like its own, like unique version of like toxicosis because of what happens is like, it's like, it's almost like pulse therapy, right? Like, but like pulse toxics. Mm. You know, it's so funny. I, I don't know why, like, I think in my head, like, sorry, I kind of have to go back to that. So you're talking about a paralysis that's caused by neurotoxins in the saliva. In the saliva. I the don't know why my brain just assumed it was from, like, a bacteria from the tick. Not actual neurotoxins, which is funny because if you think about it, it actually makes way more sense that it's a neurotoxin. Because once you take it off, it stops. <laughs> but, like, this whole time, I just thought it was because of a bacteria and not the actual tick. Yeah. And it's actually quite unique. Because, That's crazy. Like, I mean, like, it's again. a poisonous tick. It is. It's a poisonous tick. And so, <laughs> like, with the repeated, like, feedings over, like, a set period of time, like, that's usually when, like, that pulse, like, toxin starts to flow into a, a, a pet. Mm. And so it's actually been suspected in about 64 species of ticks, but kind of the two big categories are ask no are exodias oh i was saying the second one first exodia oh. <laughs> exodia and argosid i got the genera part okay so the they the they belong mostly to the two groups exodiids and argosid genera but the severity though of like this I can't even really call it disease process, like disease process, I guess. Mm, mm-hmm. It doesn't actually like specifically relate to like the size of the tick, the number of feed, like the number of ticks or the like the length of attachment. Wow. What? It like it truly just varies on tick. <laughs> like and there's That's several crazy. different variables. And so like the variables really are going to be more related to like the rate and volume of toxin secretion mm-hmm. it's going to kind of respond basically f- it's going to kind of progress like how sensitive the nerves are as well in that area yeah exactly so it's going to be like local locally responsive as well so it's also mm-hmm. going to be like kind of like what does the immune system do to like shut it down like locally right there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it also like relies on like host immunity and then other like specific organ susceptibility uh just because like we're going to talk about like it. how it's processed and stuff like that exactly but there's if huh. there's already comorbidities in other areas of the body then a pet is more likely to have a tick paralysis type reaction huh. I mean, that makes, it makes sense. It's it's a foreign substance. So if the body is, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of happens is essentially what a a tick obviously is going to bite the host, right? And then start kind of like injecting this toxin via their saliva. This is going to then lead to systemic toxicosis, 
but like especially during periods of like rapid engorgement so like usually like when they mm. first attach right and then they're like rapidly engorging themselves and then even like an excessive number of larvae or baby ticks can also lead to this mm. as well and so what they assume happens is that the toxin moves from the attachment site usually via the lymphatic system to then systemic circulation mm. where then it's going to circulate to the rest of the body. But this is also going to be where it kind of has a direct effect as well on like the cellular potassium channels and also on intracellular calcium levels. Super fun. Okay. Yeah. I wonder, why, I, wonder I wonder why it does that. Like, is it just, is it simply so the ticks can feed more? Like this is, this is the thing that, is questioning for me anyway you know like how like leeches have the anticoagulant mm-hmm. in their saliva yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what you're thinking yeah. i gotcha what's the purpose yeah. of this toxin i think it's yeah. probably just something i mean that- i can imagine like you know not in like a large dog or a person right if you're talking about smaller animals that these ticks are attaching to like i would imagine them holding still would be able to give the ticks a chance to like feed better rather than you know size wise like if i'm thinking like a mouse or something like that you know and then there's a tick that gets engorged and it's running around it's probably going to get dislodged easier so i wonder if it's that anyways that's where my brain goes (laughs) sure you're welcome (laughs) i will say like the main concern when it comes to tick paralysis is going to be hypoventilation uh and this is going to be like typically the main cause of death in these severe cases of tick paralysis. And then we're going to kind of talk about it a little bit more, but just like, again, a spoiler alert is like, if a pet has alveolar disease or pulmonary disease, they are more susceptible to hypoventilation (laughs) and respiratory failure and death. (laughs) Right. You already have respiratory disease. You're going to be more susceptible. Exactly. Yeah. So tick paralysis can actually affect, uh, wide variety of species of mammals and birds and reptiles, including humans. And so dogs and cats can be affected. That's obviously what we're going to be talking about. Although cats, I'll talk about that in a second, Um, (laughs) but they can also affect sheep, goats, horses, foals, calves, pigs, foxes, obviously a lot of our birds. I like that they have in parentheses, like specifically ostrich, (laughs) like I mean, that makes sense when we're talking about like where the big problems are. So yes. Yeah. And then like, <laughs> reptiles too. So snakes and lizards can even develop this. Cats do appear to be like resistant to the disease caused by like a specific type of ticks, mm-hmm. but they are affected by this one specific type of tick that we'll kind of go into a little bit more detail in, which is the, uh, the holocyclus. And then so cats do seem to be sensitive to those specific ticks and developing toxicity, but it tends to be less severe than what dogs kind of develop. Mm. And it doesn't tend to include the respiratory issues that dogs tend to get with this as well. So cats kind of skate by like they can kind of be They're affected, like we're but affected, but we're not. It probably yeah, likely it just, to die. Yeah. Slows them down a little bit. <laughs> like, Interesting. Yeah. So 
tick paralysis is going to be most commonly seen in Australia. So that's where they have like the more severe cases. We can see it in North America, Europe, and South Africa, but Australia is really where it kind of takes hold. I know. I think of like those videos or those pictures that I see of tick paralysis patients, and they're almost always in Australia. Like they're like, oh, we had 10 cases last night. And I'm like, last night? Like, yeah. What? And like, it's like, I've never seen that many in my entire career. Yeah. So. And it's like the see, so the, the holocyclist tick that, you know, can affect cats um, mm-hmm. is going to be the tick responsible for causing the more, more severe forms of tick paralysis in Australia. And actually those bites and paralysis development actually have a mortality rate of up to 10% in dogs. Jeez. Depending on the treatment, of course, like Australia has their own very specific treatment for this. Oh, versus yeah, the United do. versus the United States does not. So we we follow the Australia plan if we know it. <laughs> we we can't. We can't even they, they have an actual drug that treats this now. And oh, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We follow everything but that part. <laughs> everything but that part. And so Australia does tend to get those more severe cases than what we were to see here in in North America. I know the dog that I saw, it was like a hunting dog. It was pretty like yeah. Yeah, we could kind of expect this covered in ticks. There was probably at least 50 ticks. We pulled them off, dog went home same day. So yeah, it's crazy. It's not the same in Australia. (laughs) Like, No, no. (laughs) And and so here in the United States, we, we see tick paralysis, but less commonly, obviously, than Australia does. We do see it more commonly in dogs rather than like other animals, but horses is kind of like next in line there. Mm-hmm. And then in North America, our problems are going to be the Rocky Mounted, uh, the Rocky Mountain wood tick, as well as the American dog tick being the like the two most common vectors to transmit and develop tick paralysis. Yep. So what happens is like, Pets can actually develop like an immunity to, or like an antitoxin mm. kind of. And typically this will develop, this will begin to develop two weeks after like the initial tick bite. Um, and it, it'll last for a few weeks. And then it can be like even boosted by further infestations, like in further tick bites. Mm. But chronic tick exposure will eventually decline the immunity and possibly lead to toxin neutralizing effects. So interesting. Yeah. Crazy. And then in these cases, like deterioration can actually be like very unpredictable. Like it can Mm. just be super rapid in some patients and some patients can even have like a very prolonged or even like an unexplained recovery. So it's like, there's no really telling what's going to happen. Unlike Mm. the case where I pulled off ticks and my dog was fine. (laughs) (laughs) It was probably not the holocyclist tick. It was probably one of the other ones that not quite so severe. For sake of this episode, like a lot of this like deep detail is going to be more geared towards like that holocyclist tick down in Australia and like kind of what happens. I mean, the other ones are going to be similar enough. That you'll get that information. It's just the holocyclist, which is the like quintessential tick paralysis tick. Essentially, what we're going to be talking about is like worst case scenario. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that is it. Worst case scenario. Yeah. So 
in our tick paralysis cases that are due to those holocyclist ticks, clinical signs usually begin to develop and show towards, you know, for clients to identify between five and nine days after a tick attaches to a pet. And then disease will actually progress over the next 24 to 72 hours. So about, you know, seven to 10 days for disease progression and like clinical signs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, but clinical signs can, so clinical signs though, like, especially when those holocyclist ticks are involved, um, they can be as rapid as three to five days. It usually won't really run longer than that, but it can run up to 18 days. It's just pretty rare that like those clinical signs will last that long. So what you're telling me is like the tick bites. Yes. But you may not see response to the toxin until five to ten, five to nine days or three, three to nine days. So, but that tick may not still be attached. Correct. Oh, okay. All right. So like, so what happens is, yeah, clinical signs can be observed about five to nine days, three to nine days after tick attachment. Right. And then disease like itself and like true clinical signs and like progression of disease will happen about 24 to 72 hours after that. Even if that's crazy, the tick is not there because even like removal of the specific holocyclist tick doesn't actually immediately stop the progression of the disease for our other ticks. It has the potential to, but like the, the neurotoxin, not immediately, right? Like the neurotoxin is probably still like already in the body. Like- yeah, it's probably like the whole um you're discontinuing that pulse toxicity. <laughs> like Yeah, it's like the LD50 thing, right? Like how long is it in circulation versus how long is it going to be a problem and if it's not excreted, then it's just kind of building up and probably causing more problems. Well, and it also kind of depends on like how far in the disease process are they already yeah. when you remove yeah. that tick and stop that like toxicity infusion yeah exactly (laughs) so like obviously the more the deeper we are into severe clinical signs and like even like muscle failure respiratory failure things like that which can occur within like one to two days of like owners noticing clinical signs Mm. so it can happen pretty rapidly yeah which is unfortunate because it's like all right so you see the clinical signs you potentially have one to two days from there to like bring this dog back from the brink. And like, so Mm. you gotta like, so it's like, if you don't know that there's ticks or like, hopefully you do and you find them all and like you find them all. Right. I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to even talk about that. (laughs) So some early signs. So we're going to kind of talk about like through the process. So some early signs of possibly tick paralysis can include a variety of things. So, Usually we can see signs of laryngeal paralysis. So we might hear or notice a change or loss in voice, right? We can have some hind limb in court, like uncoordination. Uh, and this is going to, this is presumably due to just like weakness and not necessarily like CNS. Like it's more, mm. it's expected due to muscle weakness. Right. Okay. 
we can see changes in like breathing. So we can see changes in like the rate, the effort, uh, the rhythm. We can see gagging or coughing because again, we're kind of dealing with like a LARPAR type thing. We can see vomiting or regurgitation because we're going to talk about it, but spoiler alert, megasophagus can occur. Ooh, it's it's yeah. like a it's like a myasthenia gravis case. <laughs> like it's yeah, just like yeah. a... I mean, which is true because you're talking muscle weakness, right? Yeah. So it's it's very, very similar to like a myasthenia gravis. Yeah. And then you can even see uh, pupil dilation too. So it, that's when we're like, oh, okay, now we're starting to see some signs of those neurotoxins. <laughs> and then there there was like it was noted that like if a dog is grunting then it might be a sign that they might have some increased airway resistance so like if you know how like they do oh, like that- the airways aren't opening and closing appropriately yeah so they're like having to like so they breathe and then at the end you hear that like oh uh, uh, you know like yeah you- yep <clears throat> and so that should be an indicator that there might be some airway resistance And Mm. then hind limb paralysis. So not weakness. It tends to like kind of gradually worsen, right? So it'll initially start with like incoordination, then become like pronounced incoordination and weakness. And then eventually what we'll, you'll see is that like an animal like turning or like walking away, like you can see them like stagger Mm. eventually as it progresses, then the animal is going to be unable to just move their hind limbs. And then eventually their forelimbs, they won't be able to sit or stand. Um, they won't be able to write themselves. And finally, eventually they won't be able to lift their head. Mm. So it like, it progresses from the back forward. (laughs) That's crazy. I think it's, I also think the, the staging classification is really mm-hmm. cool. Like, I mean, it's crazy to think that it's, it's crazy to think that they actually have a four stage classification. So like stage one is, it's very mild, right? Dog's voice isn't, is, has changed a little bit. Sometimes they don't notice it right away. They notice it like looking back retrospectively and then they're kind of weak, but they're still able to walk and stand. Stage two is we can't walk, but we can stand. Mm -hmm. Stage three is we can't stand, but we can, you know, we can sit up and and write ourselves, right? Um, And then stage four is they can't write themselves. Um, So it's, 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 it's how bad it, like, what is the progression? And it's crazy that they say stage three and four, which thankfully only about 30 percent of those cases actually get to stage three and four those are obviously going to be poor prognosis which i mean it makes sense it just means they're more affected but Mm -hmm. that's that's kind of that's crazy yep yeah and it's wild too because dogs can show different signs right so some dogs might Mm. show very few clinical signs and this could be due to like just low levels of the toxin or maybe they just have a really good immune system or very protective like protective skin we talk about all the time like my dogs that live mostly outside like their skin is unlike other dogs (laughs) like it's (laughs) and then some pets can actually even show clinical signs like affecting only like one organ so like maybe Mm. they just maybe they have esophageal paralysis right or which uh, would be great considering you don't get the respiratory stuff, but like, <laughs> right. You're going to have to pick something. Oh yeah. Like if you have to pick <laughs> one. <laughs> and so sensation usually does, it's still there, which can make mm. this also a little bit difficult to detect as well. But 
usually there's like there's going to be other things that we can kind of look at to kind of see maybe what's happening but the variety of like differentials again on this thing is like it's a lot of them are other toxins right yeah but some other like breathing abnormalities that we can start seeing too right because especially when this affects the respiratory system we can start to see dogs begin to like choke Mm. we can see upper respiratory tract obstruction so again if they are developing larpar mucus um like and their airway just can't open up eventually this is going to lead to like a bronchoconstriction and then fatigue of those respiratory muscles right so like eventually like everything's going to get tired And so then we can kind of have like some secondary side effects of like aspiration pneumonia, just do, because like they can aspirate mucus, they can aspirate uh, gastric contents. And this can be just due to the lack of ability for that esophagus to properly muscle like it should. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously, like we know, right, aspiration pneumonia can like deteriorate these patients pretty quickly. Um, as we see with a lot of our myasthenia gravis patients. Surprisingly, it's actually pretty, it's possible in these guys to have like a silent pneumonic, uh, pneumonic lung like issue. And so what that means is like, you won't hear crackles. Like yeah, these dogs in particular, like they're going to have, they're going to be struggling to breathe. They're going to have severe dyspnea, but you're not going to hear crackles. And then what you will see on like, uh, x-rays is that they're going to have like extensive pulmonary opacity. Um, and this mm. is going to be due to aspiration pneumonia. And usually once like you get to that stage, like that makes the prognosis even more poor <laughs> and great. Yeah. Yeah. But airway breathing circulation, it's kind of, kind of part of those important triage things. Yeah. And like, especially the further you get into this disease progression, a lot of it becomes extensive nursing care too, which we'll kind of talk about a little bit, but especially once they have paralysis of those esophageal muscles, then those patients need to be, you know, monitored very closely because they can have uh, aspiration of saliva, ingested food or fluid that might pool in their esophagus, or they can even have regurgitation. And this can be due to like, they can even they lose the function of their pharynx. And so Mm. it can make it difficult for those patients to really try to clear out those areas leading to progressive aspiration pneumonia. And then in these guys too, like we can eventually even have issues thermoregulating. So body temperature at first, yeah, which makes sense. Yeah. Body temperature at first stays relatively normal, but that does that thermoregulation does disappear. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, And so these patients can actually become hyper or hypothermic and it's going to be affected by like obviously environmental factors. So these patients yeah. also lose the ability to shiver. So you're not going to see when they're getting cold, right? Like, yeah. And they're because so- they can't compensate, like their muscles aren't able to compensate normally. So, which, yeah. So those guys need to be it, like monitored super closely, right? Like they can't, mm-hmm. they can't swallow really well. They can't cough and clear their lungs out. They can't regulate their body temperature. And usually the clinics they're sitting in at this time is what, 68 degrees. And so without the yeah. ability to show that they are having issues, like it can be, you guys got to stay on top of that. <laughs> yeah. Differential diagnosis on these guys is going to be a variety of things. A lot of them are going to be other neurotoxins. We talked about myasthenia gravis a little bit. Can be trauma, cancer, 
right? <laughs> All um, the things. Yeah. So there's actually not specific testing for tick paralysis available, but some of the common things that we're going to be looking at is going to be PCV, serum protein. We're going to be looking at x-rays and doing that because we're going to be looking, especially once we have respiratory issues kind of involved here, then we need to be really aware of like pulmonary edema, mega esophagus, pneumonia, right? Mm. Oftentimes in these guys, like their chemistry panels are going to be unremarkable at first in the early stages. And then right. what we Because they were healthy to begin with. Yep. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, right? <laughs> Hopefully. What we can see though too, and this is going to be an indicator that like you guys got to closely watch this patient, but you can see an increased PCV, but with a normal serum protein. And what that can indicate is a fluid shift like into the lungs. And so that's going to change the prognosis as well. Yeah. Other changes that we can see are going to be changes with like BG, cholesterol, phosphate. We're going to see an increase in CK activity. We're going to see decreased Mm. potassium concentration, but none of those changes are going to be specific for tick paralysis. Um, right. And and they don't really change the, the prognosis or the severity of disease. Right, because it, it's yeah, just like another thing to monitor. how severe it is, but it's like, okay, yeah. you've got stuff going on. Yeah. So treatment for these guys in Australia, they do have <laughs> a tick antitoxin serum. It's only available in Australia, but what it does is it's an immune serum against the, the tick toxin, right? And so this is going to be a product of choice down in Australia, and it's administered as early into the disease process as possible on top of like, it's kind of like a one-time treatment, right? So other right. follow-up treatments don't tend to be effective generally just because they're too late, but it should be given slowly IV over at least 20 minutes. And manage, they do the same like type of treatment for cats and dogs down on Australia. For here, it's going to be a lot of supportive care and (laughs) tick removal is going to be number one. So in most of our infestations, with the exception of the holocyclus, removal of ticks usually results in like the patient actually improving with it, like Mm. starting to show signs of improvement within 24 hours to potentially complete recovery within 72, right? Mm -hmm. If the ticks are not removed, then these guys can actually perish from usually respiratory paralysis within one to five days of showing clinical signs. Lord. So we kind of already talked about how the removing the holocyclist tick doesn't immediately halt the progression of the disease, but repeated tick searches should be done every six to 12 hours. And so this needs to be like- (laughs) Makes sense. Like there was discussion of even like shaving pets down like completely and like finding these ticks and stuff like I I imagine like especially down in Australia this is like please shave my my dog down like just find them all (laughs) like oh my god that sounds horrible and it it's one of those things like it's truly added to the treatment sheet right like every six to 12 hours you are checking to make sure that there's no other ticks and things like that well and it's and and remember, like part of the reason why they say potentially shaving is it's not just the adult tick. You're also talking about like the nymphs in the uh what are the other ones? Nymphs and anyways, the baby ticks. And these guys are teeny tiny. So like 
you know, yes, we're used to searching for adult ticks, but like the, the babies, they're still going to be pumping toxin in. So you want to make sure you get all of them. So I, I get why they want to shave them down. Yeah. And searching every six to 12 hours, like sometimes they haven't attached and they, they're still attaching or they've, they're now engorged and you're like, Oh God, there it is. Kind of yep. thing. So yeah, exactly. And so now the caveat to all this is that like minimizing stress and anxiety <laughs> in these patients is crucial. So it's like, you can't just throw them in a tub and hose them down. Even the shaving may need to be done yeah. under sedation, right? Like, so, or maybe you can't do it at all. Right. Like, exactly. It's... They're like these guys, like oftentimes these guys are put on like ACE promazine or other types of medications, like a CRI would be great in these guys. But like high doses obviously should be avoided, especially because these guys aren't like, don't have the ability to thermoregulate. They can develop right. uh, hypotension, hypothermia. They can even have like overdoses can lead to hypotension and hypothermia and opioids. Opiates are a good alternative. Like, especially if we wanted to do like a very mild, like CRI just to kind of get things done and keep the dog quiet. Because yeah. the more stressed they are, the more, right, like they're going to start panting, then it could potentially like just exacerbate any sort of respiratory or muscular failure, especially the more anxious they are. And again, they're even prone to hyperthermia. So like if they're anxious and worked up and panting and pacing, like that's going to increase their temperature too. And that can, is just as dangerous. Oxygen therapy in these guys uh, usually is implemented, but usually in a non-stressful way. So like nasal cannulas for these guys are great or an oxygen cage, again, as long as you can monitor stress and temperatures. There is discussion of like a tracheostomy tube if like respiratory failure is so severe. I'm really sorry, Australia, that you have to do those sometimes. General, general anesthesia though really is like a good kind of like saving grace for these patients. So general anesthesia can be uh, given to patients, especially those patients who are like showing signs of fatigue and dyspnea. And this can allow for better administration of oxygen. It can allow for like drainage of those esophageal fluids, it can allow for respiratory suction. It can help to A, you can start, you know, tick searching. Um, we can mm. decrease dyspnea. We can allow the pet's muscles to rest and hoping to overcome any muscle fatigue. And then they actually recommended periods of light anesthesia for six to eight hours while reassessing like clinical status after each period. So like allow the dog to fully wake up, assess their situation and assess to see like if they should go back under general anesthesia. Yeah. Yeah. For these guys, especially when we do anesthesia on them, like well, in, in general anesthesia, yes, we're using our anesthetic machines most of the times. The Like, if your hospital does have a ventilator, these kids would benefit from a ventilator because, again, their muscles might have paralysis. They may not be ventilating appropriately. Um, so, you know, they, they may need to go on a ventilator and not just, like, general anesthesia where they're respirating on their own. We may have to, like, actually be providing that airflow. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something too, to kind of keep in the back of your head. Yeah. And then there's other little tricks too. 
like administering atropine. So that way we can help kind of reduce some of those uh, secretions. So like GI secretions, respiratory secretions. However, be aware that it does affect other secretions. So like apply some eye lube and things like yeah. that. And like also be sure to monitor like heart rhythm and rate just because obviously we know that atropine can lead to those issues as well. Treating with antiemetics can be useful for the patients who are actively vomiting, although vomiting is usually a bad thing. No bueno. <laughs> yeah. Broad spectrum antibiotics are definitely indicated, especially in those severe cases, just to help avoid the progression of aspiration pneumonia. Fluid therapy is great, but fluid therapy needs to be used with extreme caution in these guys because they can uh, develop pulmonary edema pretty easily. And so staying below like fluid maintenance levels and assessing patients for that edema multiple times a day is going to be just routine in these patients. Let's see. Oh, and these guys too, again, paralysis, right? So like they don't have the ability to void very well. Yeah. As much as like, it kind of goes against me to say throw in a UCAT, like these guys are one of those ones that like should get a UCAT. Yeah. Cause they're either not going to be able to void on their own or they're just constantly leaking because they have no muscle control. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and this is one of those ones too, like, you know, it, it's really important to remember when they are paralyzed, immobile, down, right? Um, really good, like, husbandry mm -hmm. is huge. Really good, um, like, range of motion is going to be needed for this. You know, making sure they're not getting pressure sores. Making sure we're moving limbs to kind of help with the lymphatics so that, um, that fluid is flowing and, and not pooling, you know, all those things are going to be really important for these kids because they're, they're not able to do it on their own, you know, checking their temperature to make sure like what kind of heat do we need to provide them? You know, I, I lube, you know, making sure their mouth's not getting dry, you know, all that stuff. That's like super labor intensive mm -hmm. nursing care. Uh, right. Like most of what is happening with these patients are technicians and assistants just doing a lot of hands-on work with them Yeah, and keeping them comfortable and monitoring for potential issues. Like it's, it's huge. Yep. This is a very nursing heavy disease yep. process. Client communication is definitely going to be geared towards, you know, preventing. <laughs> right. And so educating just owner on, you know, ongoing tick prevention is going to be key. And then of course, like just talk to them about, Hey, like if you go out in the woods with your dogs, give them a good once over, <laughs> like try to right. pull off any ticks. And Making things. sure they're on prevention, all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. So that's what I got for tick paralysis. It was actually like way more intense than what like I thought it was when the, I saw the one case that I did. I was like, holy cow. I know. I just picture those, God, some of the Facebook posts that I've seen from the Australian technicians, right? And it's like, they've got like six tabletop on a ventilator yeah. patients that are I don't envy Australia's intense. ticks. That's for sure. No. <laughs> like Australia makes everything crazy and big and 
wild and powerful yeah yeah like everything wants to kill you so you know it's fine <laughs> good old australia is beautiful though yeah yeah it's like an otter it's like vicious but beautiful <laughs> nice yeah australia is the otter of 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 the world is that what you're saying hell yeah it's like a like a perfect predator like it just lures you in with your cuteness and then just like i could kill you easily yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny uh i say that crazy. was the most respect australia mad props <laughs> right i know i do some of the i want to go to australia the so bad they have to deal with as technicians i'm like oh my god i know like i don't know it's crazy it's crazy yeah their nursing skills got to be something else yeah anyway well i hope you guys learned about tick paralysis we should get like a day in the life of an australian technician one day nurse <laughs> australian nurse oh yeah there are nurses down there yeah anyway all right guys some people down there i know i do i know i was thinking i was like who could i call i know a doctor and i know like, <laughs> right send me a video okay <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening i hope everybody learned something because i know i did i always do mm. and we'll chat with you guys next week thanks everybody bye, bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.